This is episode 256 of That Shakespeare Life. Just like the work of William Shakespeare, That Shakespeare Life is supported by listeners who sign up to be our patrons. You can help support the show, contribute directly to programming, and get access to over 150 additional episodes of our show that's not available on public listening platforms. Find out more and sign up today at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare Life. Hi, I'm Stephanie Klein, the Tudor Enthusiast. Another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend, Cassidy Cash. So they're not kind of set off in a, in a freak show, but of course what makes them attractive to people and why they're interesting to people, why they're court in the first place, is because they're hairy, because they're unusually hairy. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. In the late 16th century, William Shakespeare was in his 30s and staging plays like As You Like It, where Rosalind mentions the howling of Irish wolves against the moon. That's from Act 5, Scene 2. While scholars today debate whether or not that's a reference to the legend of werewolves, we know from a painting completed in 1595 that there was at least one family whose hereditary disease made many in Europe believe that werewolves might be real. The Gonzalez family carried a rare genetic condition that's known today as hypertrichosis, but its more common name is werewolf syndrome. Now, they didn't call it werewolf syndrome during Shakespeare's lifetime, but it became called that later because people afflicted with it have hair growing over their entire faces, making them look exactly like pictures of werewolves that people have in pop culture and folklore from Shakespeare's lifetime. Here today to help us understand the history of the Gonzalez family specifically and what their lives were like living with this condition is our guest and author of the book, The Marvelous Harry Girls, The Gonzalez Sisters and Their Worlds, Mary Wiesner Hanks. Mary Wiesner Hanks is a historian of early modern Europe and also a world global historian whose work has been central to the integration of women, gender, and sexuality into both fields. Now distinguished professor of history and women's and gender studies emerita at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, she is the longtime senior editor of the 16th Century Journal, the former editor of the Journal of Global History, and the editor-in-chief of the Southern Volume Cambridge World History. She is currently editing with Matthew Kuffler, the four-volume Cambridge World History of Sexualities, and she is the author of The Marvelous Harry Girls, The Gonzalez Sisters, and Their Worlds, which is what she joins us today to discuss. You can see more information about Mary in the show notes for today's episode. Hello, Mary. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Nice to be here. Well, be, as we say. Or not to be, as right. they <laughs> I didn't even, oh, I gave you that, didn't I? (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, I couldn't just leave it. I had no. to include it, of course. <laughs> now, about this painting, I'm surprised that we have the 1595 portrait of Antonieta Gonzalez at all, because I was under the impression that portraits were reserved for the elite of Europe. And I had expected that anyone suffering from a disease known colloquially as werewolf syndrome would have been immediately ostracized and seen as an outcast at best in society during Shakespeare's lifetime. And that's obviously not how people saw the Gonzalez family if they're painting these expensive portraits of them. So, Mary, why do we have an expensive portrait of Antonieta Gonzalez? What was the position in society of this family? Oh, that's a question that has lots to unpack. And I'm really glad that you started with that portrait because that's how I started doing this project was with that portrait. I saw that portrait and I said, I was looking for something else and like work by female artists. And this is a portrait by a, a woman artist, Lavinia Guns Fontana. And it's a portrait, of course, with a someone who looks kind of like a Karen Terrier, a little girl who looks very hairy in her face in a beautiful pink brocade dress. So there's this juxtaposition, this contrast between her extremely hairy face and this beautiful pink brocade dress with gold filigree. And she has kind of flowers in her hair and it's an oil portrait. So it's a very expensive portrait. And I had to understand it. And I think that there's several ways to understand it. One is that the Gonzalez family, and there were was a father who was hairy and a mother who was not, who, and then several of the children, most of the children, had this condition. And it's a very rare condition. There's only about 50 people that we know in the world, I mean, since the 16th century, that have had this condition. So it's a, it's a genetic condition. We now know, of course, nobody knew that in the 16th century. It's a genetic condition that's extremely rare that causes excess hair, which is what hypertrichosis means. It's just a fancy Latin word for excess hair. It causes excess hair. And this is the only whole family that we know that had it. It's not usually, as far as we can tell, it's not usually heritable. So the fact that the father, Petrus, passed it on to his children is unusual. But they were, your question about, about like, why is there this portrait of her? People were fascinated by them, as we still are. There's still lots in the blogosphere about the Gonzalez family and about these images of the Gonzalez family. So people in the 16th century were fascinated by these people. What was it? Because they were completely normal human beings, but they kind of, they looked to people like maybe the like worlds is one thing, but like they were wild people or like they were animals so that they were kind of seen by people as on a border between humans and animals in some ways, but they're completely normal. And the father learned Latin. So he was complete, you know, in terms of intellectual capability, but they ended up being at several different, living in several different courts of Europe, first the French court, and then courts in Italy as part of the entourage at the court, along with other individuals who were there because they looked unusual like dwarves or because they could do unusual things like musicians. So they're part of the court entourage. And that's how this portrait, getting back to your original question, that's how this portrait comes to be painted, is that Antoinette Gonzalez, at the time that Lavinia Fontana painted this portrait, was in the entourage of an Italian noblewoman, the Marchesa of Serrania. And she had been given to that woman by another Italian nobleman who's in whose entourage the family is. So they're part of all of these people at court. And courts in this time, you know, the big ones, national ones like in, in Paris or Italian courts, they would have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people in them who were servants and entertainers and officials and writers and all kinds of things. And they're just part of that entourage. So Antonetta Gonzalez is painted because she's part of the court entourage. 
by a woman, Lavinia Fontana, who in fact later on becomes an official court painter at the Spanish court. So that's why that she's painting, because she's part, part of this group of people at court. And they're not, I think, the other part of your question, that's why it's a big question, is it, was the family ostracized? And they're, they're not. They're at court. They're not sort of at some freak show anywhere. They're, the father has an official position in the, in the, the, at the French court, assistant bearer of the king's bread. <laughs> There's a huge entourage. None of the girls do have official positions, but the sons later do too. So they're not kind of set off in a, in a freak show. But of course, what makes them attractive to people and why they're interesting to people, why they're court in the first place, is because they're hairy, because they're unusually hairy. Now, there's lots of regular little girls who would have been to court too, who are various kinds of servants. But what makes them attractive or interesting to people is this condition that they have. For someone living with hypertrichosis, do they only have excess hair on their face or are their entire bodies covered with this excess hair? Well, it's again, it's a condition that's very rare. So 50 people are in the world that we that we know of. I'm sure there are more. But and there were, as I was writing the book, there were contemporary cases that kind of cropped up in the news because we're still really fascinated by it. I mean, hair has a huge amount of cultural relevance throughout time and across history and anywhere in the world, especially for women, but just in general. So from the physical descriptions that we have from two medical doctors who examined one Antoinette Gonzalez and one who examined her older brother and sister, they had hair, at least, I mean, clearly in the physical description of of Antoinette, she had hair all over her body. The doctor who's examining her, clearly she didn't have any clothes on. I mean, she might've had some sort of a slip on or something that he describes her hair as going down her back and such. But again, it's, it's such a rare condition that as far as we know, they, they have this all over the, all over their bodies. Now you mentioned that Antonietta was examined by a physician and, and that makes me wonder what the medical response was to this disease in the 16th century. Were there any treatments or, I mean, at this time in history, I would have expected the Gonzalez family to try and keep themselves shaved just because I had assumed their physical appearance would have been shocking or even alarming to someone that saw them with it being so rare and so left field of what people were used to. But I feel like at least according to the portraits we have of them, the Gonzalez family were confident about their appearance and they didn't feel like they needed to hide or try and change the way that they looked. And I wonder how that jives with our understanding of the medical community from Shakespeare's lifetime. Okay, well, first about doctors and then about people in general and their response to them again, as I think it's, and what I try to kind of do in the book is figure out the documentation that we have about the family, whether it's in writing or whether it's these paintings of them and drawings of them and such. And some of those paintings are not paintings where people actually saw the, them. They were paintings of paintings. In other words, some, a person saw the painting and they made a painting based on that painting, not on the people, which is why there's kind of like misinformation around about where the family was because they weren't in some of the places that people claim they were. It's just their paintings end up there. But the doctors who saw them, and one of them was a Swiss doctor named Felix Plotter, who saw two of Antoinette's older siblings, I think, on their way from the court of Catherine de Medici, the the Parisian court, the French court, on their way when they're traveling with uh, down to Parma, which is where the court where they end up spending a a great deal of their time in northern Italy. And Felix Plotter saw the two children on their way down between Paris and Parma. And he examined them, and he's a doctor who writes, he's a physician, who 
collected case books of many, 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 many cases. And so, and then he transcribes these and puts them kind of in order about how he thinks about certain things. And so the way that he thinks about the Gonzalez children when he sees them and where he puts them in his medical notebooks is people who have unwanted hair. So how he thought of them is just, that's how he, okay, what is their medical condition? Well, their medical condition is they have hair where they don't want it. And so the description of the two Gonzalez children is in his case notebooks. Right after that, there's another description of a woman who's got hair growing on her face and she doesn't want it, and a man who has hair growing on his face and weighs on his forehead and he doesn't want it. So here's some things that might have helped kind of, we would think of them as depilatories, you know, ways to get rid of hair that you don't want. So that's what he, how he thinks about them. And that's kind of the box in which he puts them. Other people who look at them, because we have other people who aren't medical doctors, the other responses that we have to them is that they're kind of monstrous or they're kind of part of the, what we understood, what people thought about that there were wild people, wild men that were living out in the, in the borders of Europe, or they lived up in mountains, or they lived across the seas. And they sort of thought of them that way. And they described them that way, in fact, as the wild man, the father's call is described as the wild man, Petrus, and the, the, her brothers, Antoinette's brothers are described that way, too. So the, the box that they put them and the way that they framed them was as a, as a wild man, as not someone who has unwanted hair, but kind of in this other category. And they thought that there were people like that all along. Some people, there, there was a werewolf, a man who was arrested and tried and, and actually executed for being a werewolf you know, at the, the same time that Petrus was at the French court. So some people maybe understood them to be werewolves, although the, the phrase werewolf syndrome is not a phrase from the 16th century. Then they were like, when it, later on, and this condition today, or in the, like in the 19th and 20, early 20th century, people start to think about this. They, they start to understand about genetics and they think, oh, it's a genetic condition. Well, okay, we'll put them in with genetics. So that's different ways that, that people understood them. So Plotter thought, well, maybe there might be a way to get rid of their hair or, or with anybody that has too much hair on their face. By the time Alyssa Aldrovandi, who is the other medical doctor that examines Antoinetta, whose report we have, he doesn't really say anything about how she might get rid of this hair. He's just describing her. So he's not in his work, he also has people who do drawings and, and etchings and such. And in his work, the family gets framed, gets kind of put in, in a big book of his, of things that observation that he had made that's assembled after his death by one of his students. Then they get put in with a, with a monstrous book. It's a book about monsters, about things that are not quite human, in which all sorts of stuff are thrown. So their understanding of them is then is kind of monsters. And they're actually the pictures of the woodcuts of the family are the f- first images in this book of, of monstrum. So did the father or the boys shave? They might have, but nobody would bother to paint a portrait of them if they were shaved because then they weren't very interesting. They would just be guys, <laughs> you know, who had unusual amounts, of, maybe slightly unusual amounts of hair. So one of the things, of course, with any portrait is that it's not necessarily what things were. It's how the artists or, you know, for, for wealthy people, how the patron wanted to be painted. And what's unusual about this family is their hairiness. So the portraits are, are all that way. 
Now, as you mentioned, Pedro is described as a wild man from the Canary Islands. And in fact, in this painting of Antonietta that we are talking about today, she's holding a letter and the text on the letter can be seen to describe Pedro as a wild man from the Canary Islands. Mary, can you explain for us where the Gonzalez family came from and why was this disease associated with the Canary Islands specifically? Okay, the disease isn't associated with the Canary Islands. It's just Pedro or Petrus. And it depends on if we call him with his Latin name, Petrus, or which I choose to do, or Pedro. He just happened to be born. I mean, according to this text, which is how we know a lot about the biographical details about him and about the family, is the text that Antoinette is holding in this portrait, is that he was born on the Canary Islands. Okay, the Canary Islands, which are off Africa, were an early colony of Spain, like before they get to the New World. And they were originally settled by people from Africa who come to be called Guanches. So when the Spanish get to the Canary Islands, there are people there. It's really a kind of prelude for their conquest of the New World. There were indigenous people already there who were called Guanches, who were from North Africa originally. We know that from genetics, you know, contemporary genetics. They were probably not unusually hairy. Petrus has a genetic condition that makes him unlike other people. We don't know for sure whether he was a guanche. Uh, in other words, whether he was of this indigenous group or whether he was from early Spanish people or whether he was a person of mixed ancestry. The story later circulates in Europe that he was a guanche. That makes him even more exotic because he's an indigenous person that's not kind of European. And at the time when the Spanish get there and colonize this place, and by the way, of course, kill a lot of the Guanches, and a lot of them die from disease. So it's really like the new, prelude to the New World. But the, so the story circulates that he's a Guanche later on. And his sons kind of use that to heighten their own exoticism. But it's not that Guanches are themselves unusually hairy. So, But Pedros is from, that's where he was born, in the Canary Islands. He was taken from the Canary Islands when he was a boy, probably by slave traders, because they you know, they take Guanche people and uh, back to Spain and Portugal and sell them in slave markets. He ends up going from Spain up to the French court, the court of, at that point, sort of Catherine de Medici and, and other rulers in the French court, Henry IV. And then he lives at the French court and he grows up as a little boy and then into a young man at the French court. We don't know exactly why he ended up there. Maybe the slave traders knew because he was so unusual looking that the king was interested in, Henry II was interested in exotic things and he's exotic and this, the fact that he comes from the canary islands makes him even more exotic and i keep using that word but that's really how, how people also thought of him that he, he's he clearly is he's from this unusual place and then he has this unusual condition and so he's doubly exotic kind of thing but the people knew that people from the canary islands usually were not like this i mean the pedro is is really one of a kind now, you've mentioned we don't know that much about the Gonzalez family and their backgrounds other than what we're able to piece together for through various sources. But by all accounts, Pedro or Petrus and his wife were, by all accounts, happily married. They had seven children. And as you mentioned, only four of them were afflicted with hypertrichosis. Of course, Antonietta was one of those. But Mary, can you tell us about how Pedro and Catherine Gonzalez met? Was their marriage arranged for them? Or how did this family come about? Short answer, we don't know. (laughs) (laughs) And when I wrote this, the book, I mean, one of the things, I'm a historian, I'm not a novelist, <laughs> but 
the book, because there's so little about them, so that we've got to kind of speculate. And, and what I tried to do was try to say, okay, here's what we know happened, you know, in general, in 16th century society, I know a lot about that. So here's what must have happened or what probably happened, because that's simply the way that things were at the time. So Hadris is a minor, 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 minor servant functionary at the court of the French royal court who looks unusual. We know that he has this position because there's a record that said, here's this payment as a servant to Pedro Gonzalez as assistant bearer of the king's bread. And Pedro the wild man, he's often called, or Pedro the hairy. So in these terms are kind of interchangeable. And then later on, he's married to this, and we have pictures of this. We have the paintings of this. He's married to this completely normal looking woman who seems to be French, whose name is Catherine. Okay, so that's what we know. So what we also know is that at the court where they lived, where the Queen Mother is Catherine de' Medici, Catherine de' Medici arranged marriages for other of her servants and the people at the court, including two of her dwarves. It was a sort of a famous marriage with the two of these, like married them together. So maybe she arranged this marriage between Patris and Catherine. It wouldn't have been unusual for her to have kind of interfered in or, you know, arranged for for my marriage. It's possible, but we don't know. One of the things that students often ask me, and you know, as I was working on the book, and then as I've talked about before, it's like, why on earth would a woman who, by the paintings, looks pretty attractive? I mean, she looks like a nice ordinary one. You know, like why on earth would she marry this guy who looks so strange? And I said, well, maybe he was a really nice guy. One number one, he was also clearly under the protection of the monarchy by this point. He, she knew that Catherine knew that. He would always have a position because of the way he looked, and he was he had a, a position in the royal household already. So she would never starve. Uh, she would always, you know, have something to eat. And he was clearly intelligent enough. I mean, he learned Latin. So, and again, I kind of go back to we don't we don't know is the the short answer. The longer answer is the, this is kind of the way things happen. So she, Catherine of Medici, maybe she arranged it. You know, we know you know this is a Catholic court. We know they would have gotten married in a Catholic ceremony. That's no question about that. Although the French religious wars are going on, that would have been assured. You know, we know that births by this at this point were handled by midwives. So clearly, and I know a lot about midwives, you know, clearly the births were handled by a midwife. You know, some of the children would have emerged hairy and others not. So that there's certain things that we know had to have happened simply because of the way that things were that time and other things that certainly might have happened. And then the very few things that we know. I mean, we know the family was there. We know that they went to Italy because they end up there. Uh, we know that two of the brothers end up as servants, kind of minor functionaries in the Cardinal's household in, in Rome. We know the family ended up in this little town in Italy at the end, and then they kind of disappear from history. So certain ways we can trace them, and other ways you just have to say, well, okay, this is what I think might have happened or could have happened. I read some stories, some claims, we're going to call them, about the marriage of Catherine and Pedro Gonzalez inspiring the tale of Beauty and the Beast. And I wonder if you can tell us, are there any truths to this connection? Nope, it's wrong. Oh, entirely. Well, I'm a little disappointed by that. (laughs) Yeah. Do you want more? (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) It's the other way around. The story is a really old one. There's a kind of Greek story about a woman who marries a guy, you know, and it's partly, it's a sort of a variant also of the princess, you know, the princess turned into a frog. So it's a, you know, there's the stories of, of attractive women marrying unattractive guys 
who turn out to be something that they're not, you know, turn out to be something else. I mean, this is a really old story, whether it's a frog or it's a beast or it's something else. So it's old. And it's a story that would have been told at the time. And people would have known this story in assorted variants of it. You know, educated people would have read it in Greek, you know, in ancient Greek fables that they read. Uneducated people would have known it from just a story told around firesides. It's just a kind of, a kind of common story. And of course, you know, we still have this kind of, that story around it, whether it's Beauty and the Beast or it's you marry a guy who turns out, who, who seems like a jerk and then turns out to be good or the opposite. So there's a story that's around everywhere. And I think that, and why I said, no, there's any truth to it is that the way that the paintings of the, of course, the painting that we're talking about is the mostly is the one just of Antoinetta by herself. But there are a number of paintings of the couple of Peters and Catherine, uh, and Catherine, and they're painted in a way that sort of highlights the fact that he's a beast, he's animal-like, and she's, she's a beauty. Except it's also that, I mean, with, with kind of be- the beauty and the beast story, the way that Peters is depicted in these paintings, it's also sort of like, you know, Disney Beauty and the Beast, where the beast is not just naked he's not you can don't see his whole body you see him of course in when he's still a beast you see him in kind of wearing princely clothes and such like that well pedro is usually dressed very much like a scholar because he they teach him latin in the at the french court maybe as an amusement or whatever because other children that were at the french court were also learning latin so maybe he just took lessons along with the rest of them but they partly teach him latin because they think it's kind of funny or whatever that here's this guy who looks like animal like and he can speak latin and so he, the paintings of him, he's dressed kind of as a scholar in a scholar's robe. But you can also see that he's very beast-like. I mean, he's very hairy on his hands and hairy in his face. And then she's always dressed very nicely. She's demurely sitting. Some of these paintings have the children around them who are also very, always dressed very nicely. One of the sons in a kind of little scholar's robe, like he looks like a miniature scholar. And the girl's always in very nice clothing. But it's done to, in a way to highlight this kind of this story that already existed. So that's why I would say it's really the, it's a flip that the paintings are done to make the couple look more beauty and beastie be, <laughs> because that's a story people would have known um, already. Going back to the portrait of Antonietta Gonzalez, it was painted by Lavinia Fontana, which I went and looked this up because I read the name and I thought, wow, that sounds very feminine. But I was doubtful that a 16th century portrait artist would be a woman. But Lavinia Fontana is indeed a woman. And so to me, there's two oddities with this painting, one for the sitter, but another for the painter. Mary, was Lavinia selected for this job because she was a woman or was it as rare as it seems for a woman? to be a portrait artist in Shakespeare's lifetime? It is rare. We can't say that. Although we're finding more and more and more female artists than, you know, I started in this business 40 years ago and we knew the names of about three female artists from the whole 16th and 17th centuries. And we're really finding more and more and more all the time. So that's, which is really great. That said, it, there's still very, very few of them. And particularly somebody who does portraits, uh, which means in this relationship of portrait that a patron has to want you, you have to make a d- arrangements with a patron in order to have your portrait. They have to want you as opposed to some other portrait, portrait painter. So they're very rare. And I don't want to say that's a really common thing. That said, and most of the portrait female artists are themselves daughters of, of painters. That's who trains them is they're trained by their father, Lavinia Fontana among them. That said, she is a 
she becomes a painter who becomes who comes to be known for portraits of family groups and women and children. She also painted noblemen, so I'm not saying that she only does that, but it's kind of what she comes to be known for, or being able to do family groups or a parent, a child, or just like that. So my we have no idea how exactly how she's the one that comes to do this painting. She also, though, does another sketch of one of the Gonzalez sisters that's also, it's a little pencil sketch. It's at the Morgan Library, physically at the Morgan Library in New York now. And it's actually my favorite of the drawings of the family, of the girls. It's sometimes described as a different, as a portrait of, another portrait of of Antoinette Gonzalez. It looks sort of different. I think it might be one of the other sisters, but we don't know for sure. But this one we know is Antoinette. And I think that she could have been chosen because she was known to be, to paint children and women sympathetically and well. She was also just in the area. She was in in Bologna at the time. And she was also an artist who was known to Alyssa Aldrovandi, who is this nobleman kind of person who sets up a cabinet of curiosities and a polymath and a medical doctor. And so he also, the connection could have been that Alder Vondi knew about this little girl and talked to Lavinia Fontana, who was doing other painting, was doing other artwork for him. And that might've been the connection as well. Speaking of the cabinets of curiosity, we know that the family portraits were painted several times with the intention of being distributed around Europe as oddities or parts of these cabinets of curiosities, which were collections of things that were just weird or different or surprising that people would have um, as novelties in their in their home or their courts. And we hear about them from Shakespeare's lifetime. But I wonder if the Gonzalez family lived their life being a member of of this collection of curiosities? Did they continue to live at court and have their children be passed around among noble families as these curiosity cases? Or did they retire and and move off somewhere to live quietly ever? But what ultimately happened to them? The latter. They end up, they're passed around for for a long time as as individuals. I mean, the people themselves, as opposed to the paintings of them. They move from France to Parma, northern Italy, a prominent noble family in Parma are the Farnese family. And one of the Farneses becomes a cardinal. And he moves to Rome and he builds his gorgeous palace in Rome. And two of the brothers, the two Harry brothers, move to Rome with Cardinal Farnese and live in the Farnese household as that. And then they get positions in a little village that the Farneses also control outside of Rome called Piedmont. And so the two brothers who by the, and go out there and they get they marry the two brothers marry and go out to this small village where they have official positions by that point Antoinette the painting is probably dead because we don't hear any more about her after the painting there are two sisters two other sisters who are Harry two older her two older sisters and they both end up also in this little village one of them marries in fact who is the to the official who's in charge of the Farnese's hunting dogs which is a weird thing the other one doesn't marry and lives to be an older woman and then dies and then Petrus ultimately and Catherine ultimately go there well the family ends up then outside not in a court or not directly in a court by the time the brothers are kind of middle aged they're in this little village before then they were in various courts. And then the paintings and the other artwork involving them, some of them are watercolors and some of them are drawings and sketches and stuff. They also then circulate on their on their own and they circulate up to other people, the, the court of the Duke of Wittelsbach in Bavaria in Munich. He's really interested in oddities and he has his own cabinet of curiosities that's huge. And so paintings of them end up in Munich 
they end up in paintings of them end up in Vienna, and they particularly end up at Ambras Castle, which is a big Habsburg castle in the Austrian Alps, where the duke who lives there, uh, the Habsburg duke who lives there, is really interested. It has a giant cabinet of curiosities, and also has a giant painting collection of weird thing, like giants and dwarves and other things. And he was really interested in human oddities and other things. And he then has portraits painted of them. Again, they're not there. People are not there. He has portraits that are copies of other portraits. And then he also has little miniatures made. So because people would, like he carried them around with him as little miniature portraits. And so they're all, in all, all these things. So the paintings actually, the, the family by this time is down living in this town, but the paintings circulate way more widely, including all the way to Vienna and Munich. I know we would love to explore the Gonzalez family and the history of this condition in the 16th century further. And in addition to your book, what are some of your favorite books and resources we should use to learn more? Oh, okay. You know, I think that one of the things that you could do is if you're interested in more about Lavinia Fontana. There's a really good biography of Lavinia Fontana, the artist who painted this painting, uh, written by Carolyn Murphy, called Lavinia Fontana, a painter and her patrons in 16th century Bologna, to sort of see how the female artists worked at, in, during, during the Renaissance, during the, the kind of late Renaissance in that time. So that's one avenue. If, if you're interested in the way that people thought about marvelous people, wondrous people, strange people, there's a book by Lorraine Daston and Catherine Park called Wonders and the Order of Nature. It's a really big book about, again, how do people think about, and that's really what started, started me on my own book is like, well, what did people think when they saw them? You know, I know what I think now as a 20, 21st century person, but what did somebody, how did somebody in the 16th century understand them if they happened to see them in the street? I mean, I'd love to also be able to get inside their heads and say, how did they understand people? How did they understand the world around them? But we have absolutely not one shred of evidence that comes from the Gondola sisters themselves, which is true for most women. So they're like other women and girls in that. Okay. So that, that, you know, that's another way if you're interested kind of also in the sort of exotic part of this or how do people understand? Cause of course this is also when the explorations are going on and Peter's Gonzalez is from Canary Islands. There's a newer book by Sarika Davis titled Renaissance Ethnography and the Invention of the Human which is the really how Renaissance people, just that, how they understood in this time of exploration uh, and coming into contact with people beyond Europe more so than earlier, how did they understand the boundaries between what was human and what was not? And I think that the Gonzalez family really challenges those boundaries because people are trying to think, okay, what's the boundary between the human world and the animal world? When you have these people who look much more like animals to many people, or at least have this hair, but are fully human. These are excellent resources. Thank you so much for sharing them with us. We will have a list of these resources and direct links to them, as well as to Mary's book in the show notes for today's episode. So hang on till the end to get the URL for that. And you can go and directly find these resources, which I hope makes it easier to find. Mary, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible. So your choice would be in addition to those. I mean, not a manual of boat building. That would be probably <laughs> <laughs> survival guide. Yes. Yeah. Magnifying yeah. glass. So, you know, yeah. these things. <laughs> yeah. That's a very difficult, very difficult question for me to, for me to answer. And I, and I think it probably would be a very practical kind of thing about 
I don't, I don't know kind of what these, you know, the way things work or something like that, or how to build those, rather than something that would be inspirational. You know, I think as historians, you live in, as scholars, we kind of live in our head a long time, a lot. And so it can kind of depend on that for something that would be, that would be rather than to say, oh, I take this novel or that novel. It's always fascinating to hear the the answers to this question. I should make a compilation at some point because <laughs> it's it's a wide range of things. Some people assume they're going to be on the island forever and that, you know, determines what they choose or, or they go with a practical choice like yours of like, well, no, my first priority is I'm not going to stay stuck on a deserted island. So we'll be getting off of here. Thank you. And I think that's that's just fascinating, but definitely a practical choice um, and speedy moving on from your desert island selection there with that choice. Well, what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? Oh, okay. One is a giant project. I'm the co-editor with Matthew Kiefler of the Cambridge World History of Sexualities, four volumes that goes from the Paleolithic to now that we're finishing up or we're in the final stages of editing it. 81 chapters all around the world, authors from 22 countries, which has been really interesting to to work on that and a project that we were working on during the pandemic. So these things are kind of thing. And I'm also writing a kind of similar book to be published by Gail as well which this Marvelous Hairy Girls was, because I'm really sick of the fact that all of the books about women in the Reformation are, or all the books about the Reformation are still about Luther. Okay, this is fine. Um, and all of the books about women in the Reformation are only about Protestants. So what I'm putting on is about a book about women in the Reformations around the world, because I'm a world historian, to look at the way that the role that women have in religious change in Shakespeare's lifetime in the 16th and 17th centuries around the world, not just European women, not just Protestants, this is women, women who are impacted by Christianity, not just for good, women like Queen Isabella, who throws Jews and Muslims out of Spain. So that's what I'm working on. It's trying to, a book also for general readers about women and Christianity around the world in this period, which all the people, kind of like you, not knowing about Lavinia, much about female artists, people know very, very little that there were, for example, nuns that left Spain, went to Mexico, said that wasn't far enough. Let's go to the Philippines. That's not far enough. Let's go to Macau in the late 16th century. And people would say, what? Weren't they all shut up in convents? Uh, no, they end up in Macau, where they're chucked out and they get shipwrecked and they get tailed by pirates. So, so there's kind of even a tempest, like a little tempest sideline to that particular story, because this group of nuns gets shipwrecked and hauled off to a court in Viet, what's now Vietnam. Isn't that a great story? And nobody knows that it's real. <laughs> so, so that's what I'm doing. Well, it's fascinating to always be on the lookout for incredible untold stories. Mary, we look forward to seeing your next work come to fruition. And thank you for taking the time to share this story with us today about the Gonzalez family. Thank you so much for a great conversation. Thanks. If you like the show today, be sure to let us know about it. Please drop us a comment and a rating on the platform you're listening from today. Your support through comment and rating the show helps our show get heard by more people. So thank you for letting us know what you think about it. Now, if you'd like to see more history on the Gonzalez family, including examples of the portraits that we talk about today, the one about Antonietta and the small miniature that we talk about where you see them looking like Beauty and the Beast, all of that visual content is available in the show notes for today's episode. So if you'd like to dive into some of the more visual parts of this history, you can see that along with more information on Mary Wiesner Hanks and direct links to the resources she mentions you can check out to learn more about Lavinia Fontana and other sources in the show notes for today's episode. You can find all of these things at CassidyCash.com slash episode 256. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP256. 
If you like hanging out here with us and exploring what it was like to live in turn of the 17th century England the way William Shakespeare would have lived it, then consider becoming a patron. There are over 150 additional interviews with some of the world's leading Shakespeare historians packed into our back catalog. They are only available from our patrons-only RSS feed, and you can access all of them right now on patreon.com slash thatshakespearelife. In addition to our back catalog, patrons who support the show are also treated to behind-the-scenes extras, sneak peeks at upcoming guests, the chance to help put together the question set. So if you have questions you want to hear answered, we ask them during our interviews. And there are even some bonus episodes recorded just for patrons and so much more. We have all kinds of benefits packed into the Patreon page and you can explore all of them and join us as a patron today at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That Shakespeare Life is researched and produced by me, Cassidy Cash. Our audio engineer is Gary Mayholm. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.